0: But today we're, we're starting a new series and that series is making life matter and I think that uh, most of us we probably wake up every morning wanting to be sure that the life that we're about ready to engage and embark with is a life that has some meaning and some purpose. I don't know anybody who wakes up in the morning and says I just want to be a dud all day. Most of us wake up with great intentions, don't we? Most of us wake up with an opportunity to want to be something, to be somebody, to knock it out of the park for God for a change and to make our life make a difference for the kingdom's purpose. And when we get out of bed and when we make that charge, God begins to work with us in a powerful way. And I'm hoping today that some of you who have been asking for those prayers for God to bless your life, but more importantly, for God to to answer your call into his life And to his purpose, that those prayers would begin to be answered at this very moment. And at the end of worship today, we're going to have an opportunity, hopefully, to celebrate some of the good things that God is doing in the hearts of of all of his people here at St. Paul uh, during this time of worship. But let's pause for a moment and and have a moment of prayer this morning. God, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. We thank you for um, our ability to come into worship. And now I pray that worship would not be an act of something that we do, but that it would be an art of being, that we are here into your presence, and we humble ourselves, that worship is something that is of experience, and that as we come and as we have heard your word, and as we come and as we are fulfilled by the words that you have placed in my heart today, I ask for your grace and peace not only to be upon the people of St. Paul United Methodist Church here in Largo, but your, your love and your care to be upon your people all across this world. For God, the world needs loving and caring people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hours uh, behind the, the runner in front of him, the last marathoner finally entered into the Olympic Stadium. And he was entering the stadium, not triumphantly, he was actually entering into the stadium uh, limping. His knees were bleeding, he had fallen several times in the midst of this marathon run. Cramps had overcome his body. He was beginning to be dehydrated. His body was pushing back to such a point that he just could not go on. But he was pushing himself to go and to, to finish this race that he had begun. And the crowds of people that had left Olympic Stadium had heard the word that there was one final runner, a Tanzanian runner, who was making his way into Olympic Stadium and the crowds began to come back and they filled Olympic Stadium cheering him on and as he came limping into the stadium his ragged appearance immediately caught their attention and they were wondering how in the world could somebody like this endure such pain and suffering uh, for a race and why in the world is he doing these things and why did he stay in the race and that would be a question that would be asked of him At the end when he finally finished why did you stay in the race and he said my country did not send me 7,000 miles to start a race my country sent me 7,000 miles to finish the race and I think that's kind of where a lot of us are this morning a lot of us see that our life is like a race and and I want to just ask very nicely the question how many of you in this race of life have ever felt like you've had the wind knocked out of you how many of you have ever been at a place where you have had to ask that question that, that my life seems unfinished? How many of us have unfinished projects, those home projects that we have started? Things that are in our homes that we, we look at every day, one day I'm gonna to get to that, one day I'm gonna to get to that. Unclear strategies of how to get them done, unclear ways to get them finished. We look at milestones for our lives and we see that there's a pathway to success but sometimes we find ourselves unable to achieve it. The world is filled with people who start lots of things but never get around to actually completing all of them. Maybe you're like me and there's some projects that I've started and some things that I've hoped for and things that Patty's still waiting to happen magically in our yard that I keep assuring her, one day it will come, one day it will come. We all start projects, some of us start college degrees and pursuits thereof, but yet we don't get there. We have remodeling projects, we have things that we want to do with a car, we have projects with our kids and with our grandkids and things that go along. Some of us uh, like to thrive in unfinished chaos, but most of us, if you were to ask the question, would not like to do that because we see that a life filled with unfinished chaos is a life full of failure. And every time that we're confronted with the fact that we have never finished anything becomes an even greater embarrassment and challenge for the very person that we are. The wise person begins a task with an end in mind. And and although those unexpected obstacles are inevitable, they make allowance for those things. They plan for the unexpected, the things that can come and the things that they know that they must persistently pursue the goal and the vision. And like the Tanzanian runner, uh, they're less worried about how they'll finish. And they're more excited about the fact that they are participating, that they are making a difference, that they are going to complete that which they have started, and a goal will be achieved. Any goal that's worth pursuing is, is a first place, is a goal that's worth achieving. If it's worth pursuing, then we must achieve the goals that are there. And the Bible is filled with all kinds of accounts and stories of men and women who have had many things happen to them in their lives where God has called upon them and it commands that they finish what they have started. And by so doing, they find that they totally live into the presence of God's plan. Years ago, there was a young baseball player that caught the eye of a couple of pro scouts. And as he, as he caught their eye, Uh, he was a great fastball hitter a pitcher would throw a fastball and he would knock it out of the park every time and it wasn't long after the scouts started scouting him that they gave him a pro contract well he went up into the pros and every week he began to send his mother a quick note to let her know how things were going week one he said dear mom leading all batters these pitchers they aren't so tough Week two, dear mom, looks like I'll be starting in the infield, now batting 500, which is huge as a batting average if you follow that. Week three, dear mom, today they started throwing curveballs. I'll be home on Friday. (laughs) How many times has this happened to you? Life throws you a curveball, and all you want to do is crawl into a hole and quit and go home. And we see the challenges that come with that. Most of us um, have had that experience at one point or another in our lives, thinking that we were on top of things, thinking that we had a good grasp on how things were going to get going, on how things would be, perhaps even feeling like we were making progress, only to be blindsided by a curveball, blindsided by something that we totally unexpected. It happens in business. And I remember before ministry when I was in business and, and I, uh, the deals would all come together Then there were those tricky ones that as the, as the royalty check was being cut that would come into my bank account, at the last minute a deal would fall apart, the unexpected would occur. It happens in marriages when, when one partner thinks everything is going great in our marriage and all of a sudden the other one comes up and says I want a divorce and they're blindsided by the problems that were there. It happens in the doctor's office. We go in for a routine physical, and we're excited about knowing that our health is going to be okay, only to be blindsided or a curveball, that our health that we thought was good was going to be in chaos and uncertainty. When life throws you a curve, you're immediately faced with a choice, and that is to pack it in and go home, or to dig in and stay in the game like the batter facing the pitcher who's throwing curveballs, this new pitch that he had to learn how to hit. He could either pack it up and go home or he could stay in the box and continue to practice and swing and ultimately learn how to hit that. We've got to find out how to figure out when the curveball hits, how we move forward in the progress and the choices that God places before us. When it comes to making life matter, it boils down to two things, flight, or fight you ever heard that? Flight or flight. Flight is that when something happens unexpectedly, all you want to do is run away from it. And that's what most of us do. We want to just pack it in. We want to pack it up. When our emotions are overwhelmed and the terrain becomes completely unfamiliar, we choose to flee. We choose in hope that just a change in geography, that going somewhere else, that, that that will just change all the things about us. And the truth is, of course. of of every action is that, that changing our actions and going new places never fixes anything. Why? Because wherever you go, there you are. Wherever you go, you follow. You flee to a new relationship. You flee to a new job. You flee to a new church. You flee to a new doctor. You flee to a new place. And you'll quickly discover one important thing. The problem that you're running away from always follows you wherever you're going. The grass is not always greener on the other side, as the expression said. We bring the problem with us, and the only way to deal with the problem is to go through it. We've got to face our demons, no matter how overwhelming they are. But the good news is, you don't have to do it alone. That God promises to walk with you. Now I want to go to Exodus chapter 2, and I want to kind of go to the beginning of the story, which was now the ending that Pastor Pam read to us, of the victory of Moses, of God through Moses, and the deliverance of the Hebrew people. A Jewish baby's mother places her newborn Hebrew son into the Nile River, and he floats down, escaping, hoping that he will not be killed by the armies of Pharaoh, who had sent out an edict to kill all male, male boys. He is found by Pharaoh's sister, or he's found by Pharaoh's daughter, excuse me, and ultimately raised in the house of Egypt, and the Egyptian king comes to love this little boy, and he begins to pronounce him into the house of Pharaoh, and he is on his way to become a prince of Egypt. But grown up, this young boy becomes a young man named Moses and he begins to see Hebrew people in slavery and they are under the, under the hard threshes of Pharaoh and his heart aches and one day he sees an Egyptian actually kill and beat, beat up and harm a Hebrew slave and Moses is so enraged that he kills the Egyptian. Word soon gets back to Pharaoh that Moses has killed an Egyptian, and Pharaoh is now angry and gives an edict for Moses' life. Moses chooses to flee Egypt, and he finds sanctuary in a land of Midian, the land of Midian, where he settles down into the life of a shepherd. And not long after, Pharaoh dies, and the Hebrew people begin to groan even more, calling upon God to somehow save them, for God to hear their cries that they are enslaved. And God must Come and save their people. On the outside, in Midian as a shepherd, Moses' life looks all together, doesn't it? On the outside, he's got land. He has a great job. He has a wealthy father in law. He has a new wife. He has children that are coming. Moses on the outside looks like he's got it all together. On the outside, he's a success. But on the inside, Moses is anything but that. In fact, Moses gives his son a name that describes the state of Moses' own life. His son is named, after an expression, an alien in a foreign land. But guess what? God throws Moses a curveball. We're going to pick up the story. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law who was the priest of Midian. And he fled the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there an angel of the Lord appeared in him in flames of fire from within a bush. A bush that was not burning but yet was on fire. The Greek term is theophany. God's presence by fire. In the midst of something. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. Did you see? Moses sees something. He's aware that God is on this mountain. And Moses chooses to draw closer to God at that very moment. Some would say that this is a great example of prevenient grace in the Old Testament where God is wooing Moses to him. Moses does yet, not yet know God, but God is wooing Moses to come closer and for Moses to come into the presence of God. How do you make your life matter? You always move towards God. Do you want your life to matter? Then move towards God. Move towards God in a powerful way, exactly like Moses did. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Folks, every day, you and I have an opportunity, and we are right now standing on holy ground. This is not just something we read about. This is not something that just happened to Moses 3,300 years ago. This is something that happens now. You and I meet God daily on holy ground and we need to be reminded of that. Then he said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Moses is experiencing the awesome presence of God, the holiness of God, the awe of being in the presence of God and he is humbled by what is happening. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. If you've ever suffered in life and you've wondered, does God even care? What does he just say right there? I know of the suffering of my people and it concerns me. God cares about our suffering. So I've come down here to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and with honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way that the Egyptians are are oppressing them. Now imagine Moses is hearing all this, and he knows the power of God, and he's coming into the witness of this. And Moses has got to be thinking like, oh, this is going to be great. God's going to get them, smite them, oh, great God of smitingness. Get them, God. Just rail them up, send a few lightning bolts, and just knock them out. But God throws Moses a curveball. And God says, go, you go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And can you imagine Moses' expression going from a yay God moment to it? Oh, crud. What? Me? I think given this opportunity that that a lot of us will mistakenly say very quickly, well, I would do that. I would be so so forceful and so right in line with what God wants, and there would be no questions, I would have no fears, and I would just do it because that's what God would say. I think you need to ask yourself that question again. Because I think often we find ourselves not going to rescue a, a group of people like the Hebrews from the Egyptians, but God invites us daily into small things. And yet we say, what? You want me to do what? And we choose not to do that. We want to believe that we'll do whatever God says. God, you can count on me. Does that sound familiar? I often wonder what I would do. But Moses' reaction is what catches my attention. It's like he wants to be a man about it. It's like he wants to man up and he wants to do this. He wants to be strong, he wants to be obedient. He wants to do what God is asking to him, but the reality of it is he's scared. The reality of it is he's like you and me. He's not sure. In fact, Moses presents this persona of this machismo, this outward focus of I'll do anything that you ask, but inside he's really a wimp and he's shuddering and he has the confidence level that every man has when they're asked to do the unthinkable. The incarnate sin of every man is to stop and ask for directions. He's afraid he doesn't wanna do it and God invites him. Many believe that this was part of Moses' wilderness experience. It might surprise you to know that, that most of the, of the great people of Scripture all had wilderness experiences. Life in God is not easy. Life with God is easy in that Jesus has borne our burdens. But life is that we are dealt with things every day that we must confront and we must overcome. We all have Wilderness experiences. And the Old Testament figures spent years in their own wilderness, seasons of their life, where very, very hard choices had to be made. Abraham and Sarah in those difficult moments of their lives where they dealt with infertility issues. David running from cave to cave to cave as Saul was out to kill him. Elijah the prophet facing the hardship of Jezebel as he had just destroyed the priests of Baal, and had sold out that Baal was a false god, and Elijah was now in the same wilderness that Moses finds himself, and settling to hear from God. You see, I believe that God never forces us into wilderness experiences. I believe it is against the gracious and loving character of God to ever do something to set his children up for failure. What I do believe is that God calls us into discovering a life purpose and it's up to each one of us to choose to join God in the wilderness experience we find ourselves. Just as Moses did, God wants us to choose to go with him. And while God did not force Moses into the wilderness as a fugitive, God used all of the events of Moses' wilderness experience to make him the better man, to become the leader and to become the one who would lead the children of God out of the confines of slavery of Egypt. And our lead text describes how God used Moses to free the people from slavery. As for our own wilderness experiences, they might be the result of a bad economy. They might be an illness or loss or harmful decisions which are made by others or decisions that we've made ourselves. They're seldom God's work or will in our lives. Nevertheless, God uses every wilderness experience. God invites himself into our wilderness seasons. God is present in the midst of our wildernesses. And if we allow him, he promises to shape our life. He promises to shape our hearts, our minds, and our character for his good purpose. This morning, some of you are in wilderness experiences. Some of you are dealing with, with some of the wilderness experiences I described, and you have found yourself there, and you have choices to make while you are in that wilderness experience. The question is, will you choose to meet God in the midst of your wilderness? Will you choose to let God make himself magnificent before you? Will you choose to accept the love, the grace and peace that God has for you while you walk through this wilderness? For many of us, these things may or may not make sense, but we can see how these experiences do prepare us for the next steps of our lives. But it also goes to say that as we desire to be faithful, as we desire to be trusting, as we desire to be obedient, that many of us will become afraid that the choice required to meet up with God or to be obedient with God will be too costly. Do you remember what God says every time something looks obscure? Every time something looks so hard? Every time something looks impossible? Do you remember two sayings that God says all throughout Scripture? Do not be afraid is one of them. What's the other one? I am with you. Did you catch that God's response in dealing with whatever we're dealing with in our life's choices are, do not be afraid, and I am with you. Who believes? Do you believe in those promises that God promises to be with you and that God says, do not be afraid? Hearing that, what did Moses do? He musters every excuse imaginable. Moses is human. And I love the story of Moses because Moses reminds me so much of me. I want to be strong, and yet I have questions. I want to be forbearing. And yet there are times that I become afraid and I see myself in Moses and maybe you do too. And what we find though is, is until we choose to meet God in the midst of that, that we may lose sight of the experience altogether. Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, no worries, Moses, I'll be with you. And Moses says, but what if they don't believe me? What if they don't pay attention to me? They might even say, the Lord didn't appear to you, Moses. What then? And God begins to perform some miracles. He says to Moses to take his staff. He says, hold up your staff. And Moses picks it up and it turns into a snake. And then Moses then drops it, picks it up again, it turns back into a staff. God says, Moses, take your hand and put it inside of your cloak. And Moses does and it comes out and he's afflicted with this horrible skin disease. And God says, put your hand back in your cloak. And he does, he pulls it back out and his hand has been healed. And God says, these miracles, Moses, will allow others to know that I have sent you. So even seeing these miracles, Moses continues to make excuses. But Moses said to the Lord, my Lord, I've never been able to speak well, not yesterday, not the day before, and certainly not now, since you've been talking to your servant. I have a slow mouth and a thick tongue. Then the Lord said to Moses, who gives people the ability to speak? Who's responsible for making them unable to speak or hard of hearing, sighted or blind? Isn't it I, the Lord? Now go, I'll help you, and I'll teach you what you should say. And finally, the long list of excuses comes to an end, but Moses has one more. Please, Lord, just send someone else. And Moses continues to complain. And at times, all of us, I think that's fair to say, all of us, at times, find ourselves making excuses. Making excuses for failing to do what we know deep down in our hearts is what God is asking us to do. There's a time in all of our lives where God is asking, and God is inviting, and God is nudging, and God is encouraging, and God is calling, and God is pushing us to be faithful, to do what he's asking, and yet we fail in a sense that we do not do what God has called or asked us to do. What would have happened if God had said something different? If God had answered Moses' excuses differently? What if God's response to Moses' excuses was, no worries, Moses, I'll find someone else. You just keep tending your father-in-law's sheep here in the Sinai. Moses would have missed out on the most important moment of his life, the epic event for which his entire story to this point he'd been preparing to do. He would have missed out being used by God to deliver the entire nation of Israel from Pharaoh's grips He would have missed out shaping and forming the people to be God's people. Moses would not be a name or his story would not be something we would tell 3,300 years later had he not been faithful and had he not chosen to listen to what God says. So this is the key. Life's choices matter. The choices that we make matter. No matter what our age, no matter what our gender Every one of us has been called repeatedly to be faithful to God's instruments, to be his instruments of redemption and deliverance, to be part of his help and hope to a broken world. And like Moses by nature, we make excuses. But I wonder if, if you've ever missed a moment that might've changed your life, a moment in your life that would've allowed you to accomplish something great in the name of God if you had only changed your answer. And instead of thinking it was inconvenient or too costly or too risky, that if you had just answered, here I am, send me. Listen, there, there are lots of things in life that we don't have control over. You don't have control over the city in where you were, which you were born or the day you were born. You didn't have control over that. <clears throat> we don't have control over our parents, do we? We have the parents that we have. We, we basically don't have control over a lot of things in life. But think about it, God has specifically chosen gifts for you to have. God, through his love, through his care, through his grace, through his power, God has anointed you with gifts. And those gifts are to fulfill his purpose. So God has given you those gifts. We have the ability today to choose to use those gifts. We have the ability today to choose to partner with God in the kingdom's work. We have the ability today to choose to be faithful, to be the person that God created us to be.